Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's webinar on the mood of Americans that we are recording on January the 25th. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. Americans go to the polls in 284 days. With uh, the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary behind us, analysts say it seems likely to once again pit President Joe Biden against former President Donald Trump. While the focus is always on the presidency, these elections also involve all 435 members of the House of Representatives, one-third of the 100-member Senate, 11 governors, local and county legislators, as well as various referendum measures. Speaking at the Cabinet retreat earlier this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that because Canada-U.S. relations are fundamental for the prosperity and well-being of Canadians, he is tasking Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne and Trade Minister Mary Ung to work with Ambassador Kirsten Hillman on a, quote, Team Canada approach, unquote, with, quote, businesses, entrepreneurs, organized labor, civil society groups, different orders of government, to make sure that we're ready to continue to benefit as Canadians from a strong relationship with the United States. To help us situate the issues, and attitudes of Americans, I'm delighted to welcome back our presenter, Bruce Stokes. Bruce is Senior Visiting Fellow at the German Marshall Fund, Associate Fellow at Chatham House, and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. We've all benefited from Bruce's previous presentations. To discuss what this all means for Canadians, I welcome back our commentators, Louise Blay, Gary Dewar, and David McNaughton. Louise is Senior Advisor to the Business Council of Canada. A career foreign service officer, she served as our consul general to Atlanta and as ambassador to the United Nations. Gary and David both served as Canada's ambassador to the United States. Gary through much of the Obama administration and David through the end of Obama and then the Trump years. Gary also served as Manitoba premier for a decade. Both Gary and David serve on the CJAI advisory council. As to procedure, Bruce will present his slides for 20 or so minutes. Then Louise, David, and Gary will comment on the presentation and what it means for Canada. I'll ask a couple of questions, then our producer, Joe Kalnan, will pose your questions. So please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and use it anytime you like because Joe will be monitoring it. With that, Bruce, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Colin. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be with everyone, especially with our esteemed panel. Uh, we've done this a couple of times, as you said before, and I've always learned so much from people's comments and and observations. And we look forward to also the questions, which I find the most interesting because you want to know what people think. And you can know that from their questions. So let me briefly run through recent public opinion uh, of the American people about the what they're worried about, some of the foreign policy issues that they're worried about, and uh, also what we kind of know 280 days before the election. I don't want to overemphasize that because it, a lot of things can happen in 288, 288 days. But the um, mood is uh, solidifying, I would say. Uh, if, if you look at the overall mood of, of the electorate, uh, you can see that that there's there's really very high pessimism about the future. Um, this is uh, something that's been going on for some time. Uh, and you can see that um, uh, it actually is something that has you see in other data as well. When you ask people about the direction of the country, they're also uh, very negative about the direction of the country. But again, that has been the case for many years. So there's a broader issue here at, at, at stake, not just about how people feel immediately about the country and about the future, but the, the high point of people feeling the country was going in the right direction was in the 1960, early 1960s. And while it's bounced around over time, it's been uh, the trend line has been down. So there's something more fundamental going on in American public opinion, which we don't have a whole lot of time to parse out right now, but I think people have to understand the context is Americans have been fairly negative about the country's direction and it, and by the extension, its future 
uh, for some time, uh, irregardless of the uh, administration. When you ask people what the most important problems facing the country are, it's economics, uh, followed by immigration uh, and the state of uh, democracy. Uh, notably, by almost two to one, people believe the economy is bad. Now, this is not supported by the data. The data is pretty clear. The economy is doing very, very well. The stock market's at record highs. Unemployment is very low. Inflation is going down. But this is what people think. Uh, and notably, they don't believe their incomes are keeping up with inflation, even though overall, wages are rising faster than inflation. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean every person's wages are rising faster than inflation, but there's this general negativity that is a byproduct and a residue of uh, the high inflation we experienced immediately after uh, the COVID pandemic. And uh, that perception has not caught up with reality. Obviously, the Biden administration hopes it will, uh, because right now uh, people feel fairly negative about the economy. Um, there's also a curious thing going on in the public, and it's been here for a while. Uh, when you ask people about their personal financial situation, they're pretty uh, ebullient about it. Uh, nearly eight in 10 say my personal financial situation is doing pretty well. Uh, but only a quarter uh, uh, say that the national economy is doing well. Uh, and as you can see, in recent years, actually, that disconnect has gotten greater. Um, and um, this disconnect is also highly partisan. As you can see, Republican views of the economy have fluctuated more sharply uh, than Democratic views. But when a Democrat is in power, the Democrats tend to feel good about the economy. Uh, when a Republican is power in power, they Republicans seem to feel good about the economy. Uh, and so when you ask people about their sense of the economy, it's not at all clear whether they're talking about the economy or they're just talking about uh, whether their guy is in the White House or, or someone else. Um, consumer sentiment is rebounding. And there is, just in the last couple of weeks, a sense that uh, possibly we've turned and public perceptions of the economy are improving. As you can see uh, in this University of Michigan Index of Consumer uh, Survey, you have a, um, uh, a sense of, of good feeling about the economy that, and about, about personal consumer sentiment that is as high as it, as it has been uh, back in the Obama administration after reaching a real low point uh, uh, in the first uh, couple of years of the uh, Biden administration. But just to add a note to that, the consumer sentiment was much higher during the Trump administration. And this may be, to go back to that for one second, this may be why when Trump says that things were better under him, and we ask, why do people remember that? This consumer sentiment may be what they're remembering, that they actually just felt better about the economy. Whether they were actually better or not is a different story. Um, but another reason why there is um, uh, uh, such negative partisan negativity about the uh, economy is that only uh, one in five Democrats report hearing bad news about the economy, um, but um, those are people who tend to listen to MSNBC and CNN, whereas Fox News viewers, who are overwhelmingly Republican, uh, say they hear mostly bad news about the economy. And we're all consumers of news, and if you're fed uh, a series of stories about how bad the economy is uh, and not good news, the good news that came out today, that last year in 2023, the economy grew by 3.1%, which is fairly fairly good uh, and much higher than in Europe, for example. But um, if you are fed bad news about the economy, you're going to believe it. 
An interesting development here, though, is that it's not only a difference in people's perceptions of the economy and how it's affecting them and the national economy is horrible, but my personal finances are okay. If you ask people in America about almost anything, they're more likely to say, my personal view situation is pretty good and the country is, is really good, bad, uh, including things like their romantic life. They say my romantic life is good, but the country's romantic life is bad. Uh, uh, and access to healthcare, uh, mental health, educational opportunities, almost every concern of the American public, people feel better, but but this doesn't necessarily translate into them actually then feeling good about the current administration. Uh, and it's one of the things that uh, candidate Trump uh, is has honed in on, that things are horrible in general, and people say, well, yeah, it's a, I think they're okay with me, but um, the, the country's basket. Uh, and uh, one of those issues, uh, a very strong issue for Trump, is immigration and for Republicans. And reporting just today was that there's a good chance there will be no immigration reform uh, coming out of the Congress uh, this uh, year. Um, and I think folks like me, who believe that immigration is actually good for the country, have to acknowledge that we've had unprecedentedly high levels of immigration and that uh, we are now at about 13 to 14% of the population is foreign born. We've only had that experience twice in the past, in the 1880s and the 1920s. And in both cases, there was a populist backlash. And I think that what we're experiencing now is a pot immigration, uh, and it has political consequences because just reported today, Donald Trump is supposedly calling members of the Senate and telling them, don't do an immigration reform. I want to run on this issue just as I did in 2016. So he sees to his advantage not to fix this problem. Um, this focus on, um, immigration has led to particularly ugly views about immigrants themselves. Trump has said repeatedly on the campaign trail that immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country, and three-quarters of Republicans agree with him. This, of course, is was said, been married to two different immigrants and fathered children with two different immigrants, uh, but it doesn't seem to uh, have uh, affected his view or their view of, of, of him. Uh, now, the public is also worried about the future of democracy. This is something that the Biden administration is emphasizing. Uh, you can see people are strongly uh, uh, concerned about uh, the future of the democracy. And I want to thank you very much. A Canadian poll that was just out last week showed that Democrats are very concerned about American democracy, um, uh, which is uh, probably you should be. But what is, I think we need to acknowledge is when you people say they're worried about democracy, that doesn't mean they share the, the same concerns that the Biden administration uh, says they have. Um, there are a number of people, it would appear 46% of Republicans, who are worried about democracy and say, well, you know, we have this democratic problem in the United States, Democrat, the small d problem in the United States, and we need an authoritarian to run the country. Uh, and I think that that is um, uh, one of the themes that that Trump will be pursuing, which uh, he has begun to say in his campaign that he's not a threat to democracy. Biden is a threat to democracy. Uh, and he's trying to capture that issue uh, from from Biden. Very briefly on foreign policy issues uh, that uh, are affecting the electorate. Uh, Americans are divided about Biden's handling of the Gaza war. Nearly four in 10 have no opinion, which I find fascinating. Now, this was an early December poll, but it's some of the most recent polling on this issue, um, uh, which suggests that people are far less focused on the Gaza war than, say, elites are, many of the people on this, this uh, uh, podcast, for example. But I think that we have to... Um, um, uh, we have to acknowledge that it is not uh, as a, as much of a priority as we might think. 
foreign policy issues have never been a huge issue in American, rarely been a huge issue in American uh, elections. Um, it is notable that Democrats by almost four to one are more likely than Republicans to say Israel is going too far, uh, which adds pressure on the Biden administration to pressure the Netanyahu government to end the, uh, the war. Um, one of the issues that Biden uh, will be facing around this issue to the extent that people are focusing on it is that the young and the middle-aged are more likely to say Biden is favoring Israel too much. Uh, I would note in passing that uh, it is young people in the United States who have increasingly over time been, been favoring the Palestinians, even before the Gaza War. Uh, and there is, I think, from an Israeli point of view, a danger that uh, that generation, if it continues to hold these views, being more supportive of the Palestinians than the Israeli, than Israel, uh, that the Gaza war will only accentuate that. And it, this is the next generation of American. Uh, so I think the Israeli government needs, needs to pay attention to that. Um, the uh, There's disapproval also of Biden's handling of Ukraine. Uh, six in 10 Democrats approve, but um, uh, six in 10 Republicans don't approve of his handling of Ukraine. The reporting out today is that uh, the Republicans are increasingly uh, wary of passing more Ukrainian aid, uh, uh, in part because of the immigration, tied to immigration issues. But separate from that, it's not clear that you get Ukrainian aid without immigration reform. Uh, and what they're hearing from their voters is that uh, we're doing uh, too much. Uh, as you can see here, um, the percentage of folks that say we're doing too much and the partisan difference on that perception of we're doing too much for Ukraine has gone from four points, partisan difference, basically no difference um, at the beginning of the war to a 32 percentage point difference uh, on Ukraine aid today. Finally, the horse race, Biden historically unpopular. Uh, uh, no incumbent president in modern times has had such a low approval rating in December before his re-election re year, but the race is effectively tied. You, you will see on almost a daily basis different polls showing Trump ahead or possibly Biden ahead. The most recent New York Times poll showed Biden ahead, but I think we have to assume it is, it is tied. But as I said, it's about 280 days until the election most people are not really focused on this. Be very wary of polls that, that try to make a projection. Uh, be very wary of polls that just uh, poll all all voters, which are all Americans, which I think is is what you would do at this time of the, of the election cycle. But the really important questions are when you ask registered voters and and then when you get closer to the election, likely voters, people who have actually voted in the past, then you get a better sense of what the outcome might be. It is notable that not only do, does the public think the economy is doing poorly when it's not, but people believe they were economically better off under Trump than under uh, Biden. Um, the public feels that they can trust uh, Biden more than Trump. But they think that Biden lacks the mental sharpness and physical health to be effective. I think we have to acknowledge that Biden can come off in public at times as a bit hesitant, tottering a bit. Uh, Trump increasingly comes off as a bit disconnected. Uh, we There's this viral moment when he confused Nikki Haley with uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and so we'll see how whether uh, the sense that Trump has the mental sharpness and physical health to be effective, uh, maybe that sentiment changes over time. We just don't know. But right now, I think we have to acknowledge that Trump comes off as much more vigorous uh, in public and in interviews than does uh, Biden, who seems more hesitant. And people associate that hesitancy with age. Um, 
as we get closer to the election, Biden's success is going to depend on reinvigorating support among non-whites, the young and the poor. Uh, it's a little bit hard to read this, but I'll just read out some of these numbers. Uh, 55 percent of people who made less than $50,000 a year say they voted uh, for Biden uh, uh, in the 2020 exit polls. His support among that group today is only 46 percent. So that's a nine percentage point drop. He's got to they've got to fix that. Similarly, 60 percent of 18 to 29 year olds say they voted for Biden uh, immediately after the election. Uh, they said this in exit polls. Now only 39 percent uh, support Biden. That's a huge drop. So Biden has his work cut out for him in mobilizing those voters. Two final, a uh, couple final slides. Um, one thing we're going to we should be acknowledged, and you folks are much better at controlling spending in elections than we are. Uh, this political spending is estimated in this upcoming election year to be five times greater in 2024 than in 2012. It, these really are the, the, the best election money can buy in the United States. And as you can see, uh, it, it's not at all clear uh, where this spending uh, uh, ends uh, going forward. Um, I think two things about the election, once it's over, that we have to accept. The um, legitimacy divide is not going to end. Uh, even if uh, Trump wins, uh, there will be this sense that among Democrats that it, it wasn't a legitimate election. If Biden wins, certainly Trump is already laying the groundwork for that assertion uh, in his speeches, that it won't be a legitimate election. Um, and finally, and to my mind, one of the more disconcerting things about recent American um, electoral history is that the, the most likely outcome is divided government, that there will be uh, potentially, in this case, I think people assume the Democrats will regain control of the House, the Republicans will regain control of the Senate, and we don't know who's going to win the White House. But that's divided government. It's a prescription for stalemate. In um, five of uh, the last election, last five elections, we've had divided government. And in 10 of the last 12 elections, we've ended up with divided government. The public likes divided government. Whether that leads to effective government is a totally different question. And with that, I'll leave it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bruce. That was, as always, just terrific. Uh, sobering. But um, it is important that we understand the lay of the land. And it's what uh, the prime minister and his cabinet and others will be looking at. Let me turn to Gary, because he spent much of his career looking at polling and certainly understands uh, the politics vote. Well, what are your takeaways, Gary? Well, I really enjoyed Bruce's presentation again. Uh, I do believe there's a lag between what happens in the economy in a positive way or negative way uh, to what people feel. And I think coming into the uh, 2024 year, uh, Joe Biden, who's always under under uh, valued in terms of predictability, he's always underestimated. Uh, he's got the Michigan numbers that Bruce talked about in terms of consumer opinion. He's got inflation down. Uh, he's got the GDP up. He's got employment up. Uh, this is not a bad way to start the year six or seven months out from when people actually vote. Uh, secondly, I agree with Bruce on a divided government. Uh, I think the Senate will change to the Republicans. Uh, of course, you've got somebody like Mitch McConnell as their leader. He's more, uh, he's a very competent man. He's a very uh, intelligent leader. He's good to work with, uh, both in, in terms of his own caucus and also in terms of uh, countries like Canada. Uh, I do think the House will go back to the Democrats. The chaos in the House and the short margin between the two parties, I think there will be changes in seats in New York and California and other places. And, and some of the redistricting will also help. So I do agree that there will be divided government, uh, but the Senate will go Republican and the House will go Democrat. That will be my prediction. Uh, and uh, But I would say that Biden's going out, you know, the swing states, or Biden got a big endorsement from uh, the auto workers yesterday in Michigan. Uh, they have members in some other parts of the, uh, the swing states, the Great Lakes states. 
He's in Wisconsin today. I think he's got to get rid of that jargon by not economics or whatever it is and get on to much more tangible uh, kinds of language with people uh, and uh, tangible language that uh, deals with uh, the economic improvements. I do think the border is his biggest problem. Uh, it, the, you know, we're a little smug in Canada. We don't have many people going from Greenland to Nunavut to Canada. We've had some problems on the Manitoba border, the Quebec border, but the problems at the Mexican border are huge. They've got to get more buy-in from the Mexican government. I know they're trying to do that, uh, but they get Biden, notwithstanding Trump's interference in getting a, a solution to this, has got to get some of his own ownership of dealing with this issue in a more tangible way. And the old, you know, in former days, it affected uh, the southern states a lot, but now with the, the uh, tawdry busing of people to uh, places like uh, a lot of the states that now are held by Democrats, that's very much complicating uh, the emotion on the border and uh, Biden's position or lack of results on it. I think that's just a huge vulnerability. If I was Biden also, I'd run a steady eddy and, uh, you know, talking about Trump with the dictator in North Korea and Putin and others, and I have lots of films about that. The, the, the public may not be reflecting concern about international issues, but there's so much news, whether it's in the Middle East, the Houthis, the uh, threats of North Korea, et cetera, et cetera. He's steady hands on the wheel and he should campaign on that, uh, even though he, he is older than Trump and looks older. Uh, but I think he should go with that great experience. I think they're not using that enough. Those are my comments. I really enjoyed Bruce's presentation. Well, thanks, Gary. Louise, you and I both spent our career writing reports back to Ottawa from the field. Uh, what would be the headline on your report back to Ottawa after seeing Bruce's presentation and just your own feel of things? Well, thanks you, Colin, indeed. And Bruce, again, uh, fantastic presentation and, and spot on. And, and, you know, I was in the Southeast United States, really MAGA territory when, when I was there. So I, I, I tended to hear a lot from them and how they're thinking. And it looks as if that's just not much has changed, you know, in sort of the positioning. And January 6th didn't seem to have really, there was a little bit of a time there January, after January 6th and after the 2022 midterms where Trump kind of looked like he was over the hill, no longer the right man to lead the Republicans for a variety of reasons, uh, some of which his own personal uh, uh, flaws and then others uh, having to do with his inability to rally winners because he really put his name on, on, on on candidates that really didn't get elected in 22 and, and they didn't do well as well in the Congress as they had thought. And now fast forward two years and we find ourselves in the place we're in where uh, the mood of the country is as you described, uh, Bruce. And, uh, and it seems that the never Trump again, uh, Republicans are, are back in this camp with a vengeance. And we're seeing this play out in the primaries, obviously. I think what we have to, I think we can pretty much surmise from your presentation and following the news is that this is gonna be another really close election. I mean, in both the last election, uh, uh, both the one that uh, Trump won in 2016 and the one that, um, that Biden won in 2020, it was really about 100,000 votes. It's 80 to 100,000 votes in very specific states. For Biden, it was uh, Nevada, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona. And for, um, for Donald Trump, uh, before that, it was Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, Michigan. So it, it just, just these handful, technically a number of votes just swayed the balance. Um, so I think we're in that, you know, uh, we're in that territory again. And one of the things that wasn't in your presentation, Bruce, but to add to this is, is, the, uh, is the fact that really the 90 plus indictments that the uh, former uh, president is under has absolutely not hurt him. If anything, it's helped him. We have very little reason to believe that even if some of the judgments came in before uh, November, uh, even if they went against him, that he was found guilty of something, there's very little indication that that would change things. Um, I think people have decided to just not distrust the system and or to overlook it because of their pocketbook. And at the end of the day, that's what people vote on is uh, money in their pocket. And for a lot of people, the Republicans represent uh, uh, fiscal 
for, you know, whether it's true or not, it, that's debatable, but fiscal responsibility, less taxes, and that, that, will, that it will not change with this election. Um, and I think I agree with your assessment, Bruce, at the end when you say absolutely the Senate is likely to, uh, to go uh, back to Republican. There's 10 uh, toss-up states uh, that are really um, for the Democrats to will probably lose enough of them to make the difference. Um, and I think most predictions are that uh, that the House will 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 go back. Um, I think maybe I'll just end with this. Maybe that's a silver lining for Canada in all of this is that we will have a divided government. It may not be good for Americans, Bruce, but I think for us, it's probably a bit of an insurance policy that will keep things in check. And, and so any excesses of either side. So uh, I'll end with that. Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Louise. David, over to you. You've been uh, advising ministers, premiers, prime ministers, business leadership. Uh, you, Anna, you're a superb analyst. You've seen this polling. What, what's your sort of takeaways from what Bruce has presented to us today? Well, I mean, it's a fascinating presentation and, and thanks again, Bruce. But I, I guess the most disturbing number that I saw in, in all of that was the fact that 34% of the American population thinks the answer to whatever problem we face at the present moment is essentially to have a dictator. So to, to not allow Congress and the courts to interfere with the decisions that a president would make. And that, that is so in, in conflict with the fundamental underpinning of the U.S. Constitution, that it, it's it it shocks me, and I guess you know, looking forward, if you if you can envisage what you know uh, everybody's been talking about here, which is again a, a a divided Congress with you know perhaps the Republicans having the Senate and the Democrats having the House, that kind of mood of frustration of things not happening and things not getting done and everything else is likely to increase. And so, you know, I, 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 I think that's a, it's a worrying number. Um, the other thing I would just say to Canadians is that, um, well, there's no question that the focus of uh, the administration, or the, the focus of, of Trump and Republicans and, and uh, you know, the administration is on the Southern border that, you know, increasingly we've heard complaints about the northern border. I mean, I, you know, when I was in Washington, I worked very closely with uh, Representative Elise Stefanik um, and, you know, who borders uh, Lake Ontario, her district does. And what she was really keen on and what we worked on together was, was loosening some of the, the uh, restrictions about going back and forth across the border. We were talking about a frequent boaters program, so people could actually go over to uh, to Canada for dinner or vice versa and everything. Else. And in the last, you know, month, when when she was up campaigning for Trump or in in, in New Hampshire, she was citing the problems of of migration from the northern border. And so, you know, I think I think it's it's a worry. Obviously, it would uh, cause huge problems if. You know, there was some kind of a terrorist event in the United States, and the perpetrators were seen to have come from Canada. Um, and and so I think you know, this isn't just a Mexico issue. It is actually a reflection of I think what is an increasing sort of isolationism and protectionism in the United States. And and I think the worrisome. I mean, I you know, from an electoral point of view, the auto workers supporting Biden is obviously a good thing from for his prospects. I think what you're going to see is that Biden will be trying to enlist as many, uh, as much labor support as he can possibly get over the next, you know, 288 days or whatever it is. Um, and and some of the, the demands that those labor union leaders will make will not be in Canada's interest. So I, I, I think we face an enormous challenge. I, I worry about, you know, the state of uh, American democracy, and I think it goes, I think it goes beyond simply, you know, MAGA and Trump. I think we've got there, there's a 
there's a there's an underlying uh, concern there, which uh, you know there's not not much we can do about, it and we can't preach to the Americans or wag our fingers or anything like that. But we should be aware that uh, our our open access to the U.S. Uh, economy and and to the movement of you know people and goods and services um, is 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 not guaranteed, and 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 there's lots of under lying things here that could cause us problems, um, not just in the, you know, review of the Kuzma agreement and all that kind of stuff, but just, you know, in terms of, of uh, our relationship with the United States. And so one of the things I, you know, clearly would like to see us do more of is to identify some of the big issues that Americans are worried about, the administration and others, Congress are worried about, and see how it is that we can, you know, be seen more to be supportive as allies, as friends, and as neighbors. And whether that be in, the, you know, the migration of people, or whether that be in drugs coming across the border, or or whatever it is, um, you know, we we we've got to pay attention uh, to their needs, particularly over the next couple of years, and we need to be seen as being a reliable, trusted ally and friend if we're going to preserve the kind of access we have at the present moment. As always, good advice, David. Bruce, the 34% figure truly is troubling. And uh, I was in touch with uh, our friend John Manley last night. And he said, ask the question, is our American institutions up to Trump too? It's a very good question. And I think that, um, uh, you know, if you work through the various institutions, uh, and and it's not at all clear what he meant by "are they up to Trump too?" Is that are the institutions there to kind of give it some discipline and some order and some um, uh, structure, or are the institutions more likely to go along with Trump? But I think it depends on the institution. I think the Supreme Court. Uh, given its conservative decisions in the past and its conservative makeup, uh, I, I would be shocked, except in the very extreme things that Trump might do, I would be shocked if the Supreme Court uh, tried to discipline him or oppose him. Um, the uh, Congress, it'll depend. I mean, I mean, as Mitch McConnell has said, uh, uh, just in the last couple of days to his Republican colleagues in the Senate, uh, this is the best immigration chance we have because if the Democrats uh, are even, if they lose control of the Senate and we gain control, you still need 60 votes in the Senate to do anything in a Biden, in a Trump administration on immigration. And you're not going to get that. You're not going to get 60 votes because you, the Republicans won't have, have 60 votes in the Senate. Um, and and if the Democrats take control of the House, then you're not going to get immigration reform out of the of the House. So I think Congress will be um, unlikely to uh, be either uh, terribly supportive of what Trump might do, but also probably won't won't be able to stand much in the way. And I think what you'll get is more um, executive orders by the Trump. A Trump administration, just as you're getting more and more orders of executive orders by the administration. We are on a slow ascent here in America of government by executive order. And um, uh, the, the courts in the early days of the Trump administration, the first Trump administration, some of its actions, uh, whether the courts will continue to act as some kind of, the lower courts especially, some control over executive orders by uh, a second Trump administration. It's hard to say. History suggests maybe. Uh, Trump has already uh, promised to try to gut the federal bureaucracy, uh, get rid of a lot of career people, put more political people in. It's Again, that would be challenged in the courts. If he's successful at that, then the um, the deep state, what he calls the deep state, I would call just the, the 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 career bureaucrats won't be around to try to to discipline him, and I think I think we are likely to see a second Trump administration 
in which Trump surrounds himself not with adults, as he did at least at the beginning of his administration uh, the first time, you know, people who'd been, been around, uh, had exp fast experience, and tried to keep him from doing some more extreme things. I think the lesson he learned is, I'm only going to surround myself in a second administration with yes men. And that, I think, is something we need to be very concerned about uh, going, going forward. Can Bruce, I just jump in here, Colin? Please go just, ahead, Louise. Just to say absolutely, and Bruce, just to add to that list, I think the DOJ, if I was a bureaucrat in the DOJ fairly high up, I'd worry about, about my pension and my career because I think he's going to go really deep into the D DOJ. And unfortunately, uh, the Department of Justice is obviously, I mean, it's a little bit of the... the uh, uh, as we say in français, when it comes to, to uh, management of a democracy. Yeah, I agree with you. Louise, stay with me. As I talked about the Prime Minister having asked ministers to lead the Team Canada approach, um, given your experience, and I'm going to ask uh, both David and Gary to come in on this as well, what advice would you offer to Minister Champagne and Ng as they start this uh, Team Canada outreach campaign? Oh, just two? I have my own list here. No, no, I'll just, I'll be very brief on this. I, the first one, be careful with the rhetoric in Canada. I think we're seeing too much of the negative Republican rhetoric. I think that's dangerous. I think even if Trump doesn't get in the White House, we're looking at a, a GOP governed Senate. They pay attention, they notice. So that's dangerous. I'd say stop that. Focus on managing the country and just say that you're going to work with whoever is elected. Leave the elections to the American. Number one. Number two, don't make a big deal about this Team Canada. Don't, this sounds so hokey, just, just do it. Just do the relationships, it's one-on-one. -on -one. And really, um, so far, this government has been, uh, David, forgive me for saying that, but in historically has been more comfortable with the democratic side. They really need, we need to sit down, develop personal relationship with MAGA folks. And they're not as bad as we all think. And they're not as anti-Canada as we all think. Believe me, I know, I know them. I'm in touch with them. They have a really uh, are very well predisposed to Canada. Um, and, and there is a lot that we can do. And there, I, I totally agree. I come back with what David has said. Uh, don't wait. It's relationships. Obviously, that's important. And that should be done quietly, not in the big way that it's being done this week. But also, what David said is right. Come up with policy solutions and partnerships and mind our own house so that when whoever is elected, we don't just call to congratulate them. We call to congratulate them and say, look, we've heard what you said about this, and here's what we could do. Now, we're not going to align on all policy angles, but there's a long list of things that we could do, even with the Trump administration. I think we can't afford to be passive. We have to, be, to let them come up with the ideas that we may or may not like. We've got to come up with the ideas and take it to them and be prepared to do so. Um, so I'll end there, but you know, as you can tell, I can go on. No, no, thanks, Louise. And you've written on this as well. David, I'm going to come back to you because you talked about dealing with Representative Stefanik, and I know Gary's going to come to this. Prime Minister put the emphasis on trade and presumably borders part of that. But as, as you pointed out, there are other issues that the Americans are concerned about. Certainly my experience is the Americans put big emphasis on defense and security. Bluntly, they want us to do more. Then there's energy, environment, and climate, where we have shared interests. Shouldn't they be part of our advocacy? Oh, absolutely, for sure. And I just, I just like to say, I completely agree with Louise. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that you know, in 2016, when you know some of the cabinet ministers were starting to go after Trump and assuming that Hillary was going to win and everything else, I said at a cabinet meeting. At that time, you know, button your lips, stop it, you know, shut up. Uh, and I would say the same thing today. Like this is not helpful to be, you know, talk about or to try to make the opposition in Canada accuse them of being mega republic. I mean, this is not going to win the election for them, and it's not helpful. So uh, I, I totally endorse what what she said um, in terms of. You know the issues. There's no question whatsoever that uh, you know we we always we have this laundry list whenever we want to go talk to the Americans, and it's all about our trade issues that we're concerned about, and we don't spend enough time, particularly on on defense and security. 
And there's no question in my mind that we were able to get the steel and aluminum tariffs removed uh, when Trump used Section 232, which was essentially to declare steel and aluminum from Canada as a national security threat. What we did was we leaned on the U.S. military leadership and defense, the defense leadership and the security uh, leadership. And I remember saying to many of them, um, if, if you really want to have us become a national security uh, threat, you'll keep those tariffs on. And, and I know that they did weigh in on this issue and helped us on a trade issue. And so we, we cannot, and, and I, I would say today, the relationship and the strength of, of our reputation in those two areas is not the same as it was then. And uh, we, are, we, we, we are seen to, you know, and this is not just this government, this has been going on for some time, but the reality is Canada has not been seen in the United States as reliable and dependable a defense and security partner as we had in the past. And we've got to change that. No, very much an investment in things. Gary, um, the Prime Minister also talked about a multi-layered approach to le different levels of government, bringing in business, bringing in labor, something you've always endorsed. As we go into this campaign, advice from you? Well, I think, I think using all those assets we have, we should. And I would add, it's not just going to happen. I don't like the word charm offensive. I also don't like putting your hand on the horn and campaigning against Trump, uh, we wouldn't. We don't want, as David just pointed out, we wouldn't want anybody interfering in our elections. And we should treat our American election contests in a similar way. Uh, I would, uh, I would include the governors uh, and premiers. Uh, a lot of economic decisions are made in the states by governors, and of course, each governor has uh, up to two senators in their states that have a lot to say about economic decisions in Washington. So don't just go to Washington. I would say our biggest weakness, and I think we've got to deal with it now, is our position on, uh, on NATO. Uh, you mentioned John Manley, he's the one that used the, the term, uh, when the bill comes, we head to the washroom. I remember the last time I heard that was Mike Harris talking to Jean Chrétien and it helped me. So of course, Jean Chrétien <laughs> flicked this away like a foreign object in a salad. <laughs> but I, I digress. But, you know, I was at a meeting of about 2,000 legislators who elected people in Western Canada and Western United States uh, with David Jacobson and uh, David Wilkins and I. And the biggest issue there was Trudeau promising uh, to uh, sign up to the 2% of NATO and then going to another media outlet and say, I have no intent of following that. And, you know, I would not wait to find out what's going to happen in November. This is the window to do it. And I do believe Canadians would support uh, investments in military, particularly to protect the Arctic when our neighbor is Russia. So I think there is a public will to do that. You just got to get, you got to get out and communicate. But I do not want to wait till after November to decide what we're going to do on, on NORAD, uh, we should, or NATO rather. We should do it now. Oh, Nora, it fits into that very much as well. Well, I mean, can I just add one thing here? Is that Please, what you're ahead, all Bruce. talking about is how does Canada Trump-proof itself? And the onus is on Canada to do it for itself, right? Yeah. Uh, what, you know, what can it do to strengthen its commitment to NATO? You know, bearing in mind that the U.S. may step back from NATO under a Trump administration. You know, what can it do to do to strengthen the relations with state governments and 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 Congress, uh, which uh, uh, is needed? I think both the well, the Canadians, the Europeans, the Japanese all should be thinking about, you know, we we can't control what happens in the U.S. election, but we can prepare for a different world. And frankly, even if Biden gets reelected, some of this stuff is needed because, as Louise said, the underlying issues here, um, the you know, MAG is not going to go away if Trump gets defeated. There's going to be 30 or 40 percent of the American public who share some of these views. 
And uh, the Biden administration has to adapt to a new world, too. And that new world includes a U.S. who can't continue to bear all of these burdens, who had a U.S. That, that has economic interests that it will defend, if that's you want to call that protectionism or isolationism, fine. But it's I think it's inevitable that it, we're going to move in that direction. And so the question is, how does one adapt? And I think the suggestions that David and Gary and Louise have have made are all part of preparing for that that next future. Oh, thanks. And I know you've written a good piece about what the Europeans need to do. Thanks for supplementing it. We'll link to that piece you wrote. Joe, I'll turn to you because I'm sure there's some questions in the audience. Why don't you give us a couple of uh, the, the main ones? For sure, Colin. And uh, just keeping an eye on time here as well, I'm consolidating a few of the questions here because we've gotten quite a few. So uh, to start off with, uh, we have a question from CJAI fellow Roy Norton. Uh, about uh, the concept of divided government in the United States. So uh, this regards the uh, idea of, uh, as we can probably remember uh, back in 2019, around the Kuzma negotiations, there was a divided government in the United States. And uh, that was actually uh, in some ways beneficial for Canada because it gave the Canadian negotiators a bit more leverage. So I suppose the question is, could a divided government in the United States potentially be beneficial for future negotiations? Okay. Bruce, why don't you lead with that? Um, yeah, hopefully. I mean, <laughs> I think it depends on the issue. It depends on uh, how that that breaks out in terms of, say, you have a, a Republican Senate and a Democratic House. Um, I think the bigger issue is one that Louise uh, pointed to, which is uh, a stalemated government leads at least some people to believe that we need a different form of government. And that's not good for Canada. It's not good for the United States. And so uh, now we should acknowledge that Congress has had the least productive year in modern history in the last year, which is a real sign of stalemate. By the same token, in the first two years of the Biden administration, they accomplished an enormous amount more than anybody probably since FDR. Um, uh, but uh, I think a lot of the frustration of American democracy can be attributed to the fact that nothing seems to get done. Only politics seems to get done. And I think that that even if there are certain issues where Canada might benefit from divided government, as you say, from history, there's some examples of this. I, I do worry that the, the broader issue of the future of American democracy um, uh, is not in uh, it, it trend in a bad way. That's not in Canada's self-interest. Thank you, Roy, for, for that question. And great to have you uh, ask it. I, I think it matters in this case for Canada because in this one case, in two years, you know, 2026, we have the renewal of USMCA, Kuzma. And if if the White House does not control uh, Congress, it would make the renewal, I think, more likely because there are Congress, we have had um, uh, members of Congress tell us that they feel that if it gets reopened, they get to jump in and they get to have a say and they get to have to provide the president with negotiating authority. However, the way it's drafted, David would know even more intimately than I, he was, at the, he was there, but the way it's drafted now, the president can just roll it over. If all three leaders agree, it gets rolled over. And so I think that if it's divided, we get a higher chance of rollover because the president is not going to want to open that Pandora's box with, his, with a, a Congress he doesn't control. Uh, and that, So that's what I would add to that. Thanks. Joe, next question. Okay, I received a few questions uh, about uh, your slides, Bruce, and I think that uh, the rest of the panelists could uh, uh, opine here as well. Uh, and this is on the U.S. deficit and how that impacts perceptions in the United States, uh, I suppose, and in Canada about the health of the economy. Bruce, the deficit. <laughs> if you ask the American people about the deficit, they're going to say it's this is a horrible thing. You know, people should be able to balance their home, family budget. They'd balance the national budget. There's no connection between those two issues. But in 
an average person's mind. That's how you operate. And so that's how the country should operate. Um, you know, there is, there is a, what we learn in public opinion is that human beings are infinitely capable of holding mutually contradictory emotions at the same time. So they think that the national deficits, oh, by the way, could you fund this or that? Especially, and you get and cut my taxes in the process. Um, <laughs> and so I think that um, it's a talking point, especially for Republicans. Uh, but then when they govern, they don't seem to care about it. Uh, the, the debt in, increased dramatically under the Trump administration because of the tax cuts, um, or at least largely because of the tax cuts. Uh, and I think that um, it is true that there may be a reckoning moment at some point in the future. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the steady growth in the debt to GDP ratio, you as Herb Stein, one of Nixon's advisors, once said, you know, if it, something can't go on forever, it won't go on forever. And so that is one of the issues we face. But I don't think, other than a good talking point for especially Republican candidates, uh, which their, you know, their listeners kind of cluck cluck and say, oh, yes, you're right. All right. One, one, one last question, Joe, and then I'm going to ask uh, our esteemed group what they're reading and streaming please yes, Joe, certainly uh and uh just in uh you know the interest of time i suppose uh we should uh quickly go through this last one this uh this one i think uh ambassador dewar and uh david mcnaughton uh you will both be able to opine on uh, as well as louise if she has time uh so what, what are the current initiatives to um uh gain sort of exemptions to the trend in buy america policy in the united states uh, as was managed back in 2010. All right. Well, dealing with Buy America, both Gary and David, please, why don't you start, David, on how you dealt with Buy America? Well, I mean, you know, we, we tried to, first of all, we enlisted a lot of the provinces and the business community and everything else. And we, on occasion, um, would get the Americans' attention by saying, if you go ahead with that, we, you know, we would regrettably have to, you know, block um, the import of uh, Kentucky bourbon or something like that. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, that whole sentiment of Buy America is, is, is increasing. It's going to get uh, more prevalent regardless of who, who wins. And, uh, you know, again, we just go back to, uh, to what we said before, unless we are seen to be um, you know, seem to be reliable partners on more than just the economic front, then we are in danger of uh, Buy America spreading. Uh, and I, you know, I, I just watching U.S. football games, um, the number of ads where the companies are all saying, and it's made in America, you know, it's just a this is a, a, a tone and a thing that is going on at the present moment that we should be very much aware of. Well, I, I just wanted to talk about Buy America. We actually had a lot of help from the unions uh, and we, uh, uh, with the Buy America, with Pelosi and Leo Gerard, the head of the steelworkers to get a waiver on Buy America when Obama first got elected. And then we later on threatened to uh, ban California wine. So we switched about 70 votes in California in the Congress to back, back off some of the provisions that were in Congress when Pelosi was speaker. So you gotta, as David pointed out, you gotta, you gotta get your elbows up a bit. All right, my final question, I'm gonna ask you to lead on this, Gary, is what are you streaming or reading these days? Uh, I'm reading a book about John Norquay. Uh, he is the first uh, elected premier of Manitoba. I've just got the draft book written by Gerald Friesen. Uh, he was the first indigenous premier in Canada. He had many positive, arguments with uh, John A. McDonald and some very destructive ones on the CPR railway. Uh, but anybody interested, interested in Canadian history, I'm plugging Gerald Friesen's book, John Norquay, the Honorable John Norquay. It's Perfect. a long book. Gerald Friesen and John Norquay. There's a building named after him as well. Louise, what are you reading? Yes. Streaming? I'm reading uh, General uh, Petraeus' latest book 
on uh, the evolution of warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. And I'm just in the first few chapters, so I can't yet you know, recommend it. It's really dense, but it is, uh, it's fascinating uh, to see how some things have completely changed and some things um, I've, I've not, but, uh, but a, a big book and I'll let you know. All right, David, what are you reading or streaming? Well, I, I, just, I just started a book, uh, you know, in this whole spirit of optimism and, and uh, <laughs> for the future, and it's called Why Nations Fail uh, by James Robinson. <laughs> it's, 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 it's tracing, you know, why some countries actually have been very successful and, and, and you know, against all odds and why others who you think, you know, should be, uh, you know, really successful have not. So I just thought kind of interesting for today's world. Yes, well, we'll hope it doesn't have, have, have to have to have soon practical application. Bruce, you finish this off. What are you reading or streaming these days? Well, actually what I'm doing is I'm listening to uh, a Great Courses uh, uh, series. I highly recommend the Great Courses. They're lectures by professors on before 1776 life in the American colonies. All right, where it all began. Thanks. Yeah. Great lectures before 1776. Thank you, Bruce. And thank you all. I hope you've enjoyed the this CGAI webinar. We were joined today by Bruce Stokes, Louise Blay, Gary Dewar, and David McNaughton. You'll find Bruce's presentation on, on the CGAI website, and we'll be broadcasting this session on a future Global Exchange podcast. We thank our strategic sponsors, Lockheed Martin Canada, General Dynamics, Irving Shipbuilding, Hanwha Defense, and Sanovas Energy for making this webinar possible. My thanks to our producer, Joe Conlain, who also asked the questions. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today.